And that uh, song we just read about the, the heavens and the work of the, his fingers and the moon and the stars. And what is man that you're mindful of? And that's something good to hold on to because of uh, times that we live in. We're going to kind of be looking at the, the title today is called Is Christianity Losing? And of course, I think we all know the answer. I'm not going to put no, obviously, but uh, the way that things look to be, somebody could misunderstand that. Um, you guys are familiar with Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and they were on a camping trip, and uh, the day came to a close, and they had their uh, big meal, and they went to sleep that night, they were sleeping well, then... Holmes, uh, sometime during the night, nudged Watson, and he says, look up at the sky and uh, tell me what you see. And so Watson said, millions and millions of stars is what I see. And Holmes asked back, what does that tell you? And Watson comes back, he says, astronomically, there must be billions of galaxies. Astrologically, Saturn is in Leo, uh, horologically, the time is a quarter past three. Theologically, God is all-powerful, and we are small and insignificant. And meteorologically, if I can say that, we have a beautiful day tomorrow, looks like. Yeah. What does it tell you, Sherlock? And Holmes was quiet for a moment or so. He says, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> Thank you. You guys are very kind. Someone has stolen our tent. An enormous robbery has taken place in which someone has stolen from you and I what provides shelter and covering in our lives. And not really, but there is the mentality of our day that denies the Creator that we were just reading about in Psalm 8. Deny the Creator and all His creation that came from Him. And any worldview that supports any idea of a belief in a Creator is very unwelcome. Of course, that being in, in our schools, of course. Uh, definitely in the scientific realm today that is very unwelcome matter of fact if you were to espouse that and write about that and you're a scientist they would expunge you they have from many institutions so it's unwelcome even in discussion with people science says there's no such thing as a creator and today we have the new atheist you've heard of the atheist you say well, what are the new atheists well, the new atheists are much worse. The new atheist will try to plunge you down to the ground if you say anything dealing with a creator God. They've written many books and they've been not only bestsellers, but number one New York Times bestsellers coming from people who not only believe in atheism, but they hate Christianity. They hate Christians and anything that has to do with Christianity and religion, for that matter. But anyway, I would say that 
The world has dramatically tilted. We know it's already a sinful world, and we know that it has been doing that for thousands of years. But I think we're in a culture where we can see that there has been decay, there's been demise, and it definitely deserves what lies ahead as far as judgment concerns. And in the day that we're living in, I think we can say even Christianity, if we can put that name up there like that, Christendom maybe, is on a downward spiral as far as the morality of man is concerned and uh, the church seems to be going in that same kind of tailspin. If you were to look at Europe and the United States, if you look at attendance, if you look at figures, and uh, when, when, we, when we see these things, when we look at these things, sometimes our feelings and uh, what seems to be out there seems like it's, Everything is is totally undone, and we're uh, we have no hope. We know better than that as Christians. And sometimes what seems to be isn't always that case. But if we were to look at the public schools and the universities and the scientific realm and the political realm, uh, anything that's connected to Christ is not welcome. Uh, but. It is interesting if you were to look at what is happening in some countries in Africa and in Latin America and even in China. Numbers are exploding. Korea, where people are becoming Christians in huge numbers. Not like what's happening here. We're seeing plus figures. So in in a lot of senses, Christianity is gaining numbers. Of course, we know Jesus talked about in parables that that tree would grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And we know that there can be a lot of non-Christians in that, in that realm, but a lot of Christians, but professing, professing church. But at the same time, we know that that's what's happening. We tend to be very narrow in looking at our own little world, our own little town, and our own little state, and our own little country, forgetting that God has a church that's working all across the country. And I mean the world. Uh, I think we can recognize that people who grew up in mainline denominations, even in our times, especially in our times, when we were little kids, many people went to church. I think a vast majority did go to church. There was a church on the corner and, or a church out in the country. And so many people would, would go there. Uh, I, I think it would be safe to say many more people went then than they do now. Um, but they, a lot of them just inherited a membership, and many of those didn't even know what they really believed. They didn't really know Christ, but they knew some things about Him. Now today, we're in a culture that there are many people who don't know anything about Christ. I used to assume that everybody had heard about Jesus Christ, and I can't even assume that anymore. Uh, and if they've heard the name, they don't know anything about Him whatsoever. And uh, so I think confusion is there. Many today, though, are also hostile to Christianity. And as I mentioned earlier, the the new atheists are very hostile to uh, Christ and Christianity. And if one tries to find out another's worldview, don't be surprised that they may severely attack you because um, they will take an offense to anybody that would be as narrow as Christians. So there are hard doubts that can be thrown at Christianity. And some of the doubts that they throw your way 
are probably pretty good questions that they're bringing forth. And it uh, leaves open an opportunity for us to explain that or at least give them somewhat of an answer. We can't give answers to everything, but we are uh, to be prepared, as Peter says, uh, to give that answer. Apologetics. Is a, is a Greek word in that. But, uh, it's always being ready to defend the faith. Uh, we don't really defend Christ ourselves. I mean, His Word is there. But we bring forth what truth is and what we know to be truth. And if we're in His Word, we love to be able to do that. Uh, so to anybody who would challenge Jesus Christ and His truth, we want to be able to give that out there and uh, hope to give them the Gospel. If you looked at the statistics of the exponential growth of the Muslim religion, of Islam, it is incredible over the course of 1,300, 1,400 years how that has grown. And, uh, you can look at a world map and you can see where if they have colors where the Muslims are at. It's uh, mind-boggling to see the growth of, of that and uh, growing today and even in our own country now. And then you have the new atheism with all those top-selling books. If we didn't know God's Word or uh, if we weren't concentrating on it, I think we'd be less optimistic about Christianity. I think we'd be scared to death with what's going on. Politically, I think we have to feel estranged with what is, what is happening where you have the Constitution uh, being ripped to shreds where it seems like the foundation is totally being taken So what do we make of all this? What what do we do with this? Uh, What about the future of the church? What what do we do? Are are we losing the war? It seems like we're losing a lot of battles. Are we losing the war? Uh, We know we're not. But I will tell you, there are many casualties that are in the same army that we fight for. And many of them are laid down to the ground. Uh, They're giving up. How do we deal with our doubts? How do we deal with all the struggles that that we face each day? How can we be strong? How can we be encouraging in a very hostile world? What we're going to look at today are uh, some of the doubts and questions that are brought forth not not only from atheists and people who would be from other religions, but also even in the Christian realm. And I think... I have gotten this many times down through the years from people that are Christians. Uh, At the store, you get to talk with several different kinds of people. Most of the time, they're pretty uh, solid Christians that I know of that that come in, but uh, there are people who have a lot of doubts, and some of them will uh, definitely spew those forth when they get the opportunity, and, and I'm glad to oblige to be able to try to give them an answer. But the goal that we're after here is to be even more adept in engaging with the, with the culture when that time comes and, and sharing that truth of Christ and the Gospel. Um, it is difficult. We live in a time that people don't believe in absolutes. How do you start with the Word of God if the Word of God means nothing to them? How do you start with truth when there is no truth or my truth and their truth are totally contradictory but yet we're saying the same thing? How do you start? How do you do with that? It's, it's, it's difficult. But, but we have hope. We have, we have the hope to a lost and dying world. Now, the first one that troubles people is that Christianity is exclusive. 
It's more exclusive than any other religion, any other belief out there. Jesus made claims, we know, that were absolutely exclusive, totally unique from any other religion that's ever been. He made some remarkable claims. And if he didn't come through with those, we wouldn't be here today. Matter of fact, we would have never heard of him had there not been the resurrection. That religion would have been put out in a short amount of time by probably way before the end of the first century. It would have been stepped on and stopped. Christ and his resurrection is a big pinpoint that we have. That's the foundation. Uh, and so that's, that's part of the gospel. That is the gospel. He died and was buried and he rose again. That great story. So, made claims. He proclaimed those. We proclaim them today, 2,000 years later. And it's absolutely true. And don't ever be ashamed of that. <laughs> don't ever be ashamed of truth. The, uh, the statement of one way. John 14:6, I am the way. The truth. The life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a very bold claim. He's saying the only way there is to heaven is that way. It's very revolutionary today to say what we just said. Now, not in the church, but out in the world, to even say that to even some Christians, it can be very bothersome to them. Well, we can't really say that. Um, You know, yeah, we, we are... Um, we do have Christ and we believe in Him, but you, you cannot rule out other people. I, I've had that several times throughout the years just working at a Christian bookstore. And uh, then uh, I think that is a problem that uh, must be addressed by preaching today. If you look in Acts chapter 4, we start at... Uh, Let's pick it up at verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their elders, rulers, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? How did you do this? Uh, A lame man had been healed. Everybody saw it. They knew that this really happened. (laughs) How? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You rejected Christ. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Better be careful there, Peter. They're going to arrest you and throw away the key. I mean, to make this statement. 
Yes, Jesus was here. It's one thing. They know that. And they know that there's been a miracle that they've just done. They said, how did you do it? By what name? What power? And he came out and said, okay, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it was under the power and the name of Jesus Christ. And that was very unfavorable at that time, just as it would be today. Only probably worse because the Jews uh, had uh, killed Jesus. But this is Scripture and this is the content of Scripture. And he's telling forth the Gospel. And this is revelation from God. God reveals Himself in these last days through the person of Jesus Christ. He has revealed Himself through the Word of God. They actually got to experience that. But there He is speaking truth and that He's the chief cornerstone. It was even built on uh, in verse 11 um, out, of, out of the Psalms and Isaiah. And so they knew what he was talking about there, but uh, revelation from God is indispensable. That's what we have. That's what we have to confront a culture that has no belief in God or no belief in Christ, whether we do. Scripture is our authority, and uh, we must always remember that. There are always going to be people that are going to say this. Yes, but there just can't be one religion. You just can't be that way. And they'll say that you are arrogant to even say that Jesus is the only way. If you say that your belief is the only way, how can you say that? That's what they're thinking. And I know, they're really saying that. And if they don't know, it would be a good question, wouldn't it? I think it's very fashionable today to believe that all religions are beautiful that they're all one and the same. They're just saying different ways. But, you know, if you take Hinduism and Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, put them together and say, okay, what is it that you espouse? What is it that you believe? The Buddhist doesn't believe in the eternal soul as the Hindu believes in an eternal soul. It's just reincarnation over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You die and you reincarnate. You die and reincarnate until you finally reach nirvana or nothingness or no existence or whatever whatever it is. Do you see where Buddhism and Hinduism clashes? They can't be one and the same in themselves. One says, no, there's no eternal soul. The other one says, yeah. That was those two religions. Islam believes in one God. Not the same God that we have. He's a false God. He's not really a God. But Islam believes in one. And, okay, what about Hinduism? Hinduism believes in millions of gods. Cows. Animals. Right on all the way. I mean, just whole tons of gods and yet Islam says there's only one Christianity says there's only one and Judaism says there's only one I think a major difference is that they can't agree upon how many gods there are one says one the other says millions how can you say they're still all the same how can they do that Christianity differs with all these religions vastly in every area it's built around Christ no other belief is built around Christ. They might may identify with Jesus, but they uh, are not trusting in Him. Um, that's by individuals, groups of people that might say that. 
How about as we have looked down through the 20th century, how did certain governments respond to religions and Christianity and Judaism for that matter and other ones? Through the ages, governments have tried to exterminate religion because it conflicted with their agenda in the political realm. And because of that, in the 20th century, you had countries like Soviet Russia, Communist China, Nazi Germany, who tightly controlled the religious practices of their day. And they tried to even stop it, taking away the power of the state. Alistair McGrath has said that the greatest intolerance, you hear that word, and violence of that century, in the century that we have lived in, were practiced by those who believed that religion caused violence and intolerance. They were the ones who were violent and intolerant. But they say that Christianity, Judaism, even Islam certain times, was violent and intolerant. Literally, millions were killed. Nazi tongue, Hitler, of course. You can go on and on. We know the history. People forget that. But that's what governments have done. And that's just involving other religions or Christianity. Uh, people in, in, uh, in our time say all religions are valid. They teach basically the same thing. They say the doctrinal differences are really superficial. They teach the same. They believe in the same God. They say that God is an all-loving spirit in the universe. Doctrine is not important. It doesn't matter what the Hindu believes. It doesn't matter what the Christian believes. They just there's all uh, there's a there's a spirit God out there somewhere, and uh, however people term it, it doesn't matter. We're all the same. Only thing is, what are they espousing? That's a doctrine in itself. When they say that, isn't it? When they say, well, they're all the same. They have just now taken arrogant view themselves. Doctrine itself say they're the same. Each religion sees a part of spiritual truth. That's what some people say. Well, every religion is all the same road. They just see a little piece of it. And you guys have heard about the illustration of the elephant where you have the blind men, three blind men, the elephant. They're walking beside it and they each touch it, right? One holds a trunk and he describes it. Then another one uh, touches its leg and he describes what that leg feels like. It's kind of different than the trunk. And the other one uh, feels the side of the elephant and then it feels different than the trunk or the leg and he describes that. So each fell on one part of the elephant, right? And not the entire elephant was felt by them. Well, they compare this to all the religions. But the story is told from the point of view from someone who is not blind. Whenever you see somebody who says that we're all in the same, they're saying, yeah, they were blind, but I am not, and I can see this whole elephant and can describe it all. That's really what they're saying. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? Is what we would say to that. How could they know no religion can see the whole truth unless they have a superior knowledge? And they just claim that they have. None of the religions have a superior knowledge is really what they're saying. And they espouse that. But we can say 
what truth is because we have revealed, uh, we have doctrine, we have teaching, and it's on an authority. We have great manuscripts that outnumber any other kind of religion or philosophy uh, for the last thousands of years. Another one is uh, they'll say, well, you were born in this culture, so that's why you believe that way. If you are in another culture somewhere else, you'll believe something different. Now, you'll probably hear that all religions are equally true. Now, today, it's becoming this way. Be ready for this if you engage with certain people. All religions are equally false. We've been saying that they're all equally true. Now, many of them are saying it's equally false. They say all spiritual claims are a product of the culture that we are in and the time that we're in. Everyone belongs to a certain community or nation, what have you. And whatever truth that is, you're going to have. Anything else that's foreign, you will discourage it. You see what they're saying there? You know, it's, They put you in this kind of position. And what they're saying, it's impossible to judge right or wrong in beliefs that are competing. So how can you say that? This is their reasoning. They say that no belief can be held as a universal truth for everyone. That's how they have arrived at that. But that's a claim in itself, isn't it? Is that not a claim? Is that a very arrogant claim? I think it is. Everyone makes truth claims, and sometimes it is hard to weigh them, but at least I think we have no alternative but at least to try to do so. Okay, here's this group and here's their truth claim. Let's weigh that against a standard. We must have a standard. Our standard is the truth. We'll weigh all religions versus that and we'll see that uh, none of them are claiming Christ. So out that goes right there. And of course, he, he backed it up with what he had done. Um, contradictions is what that belief uh, is about. Uh, matter of fact, it really seems like God is unknowable to the lost world out there when, when you engage in speaking with them remember that they are thinking that you can't really know God. He's not a God of wrath. How can you say that He will judge? I've always heard that if there is a God, He's a God of love. That's probably what they'll say. Or He's an impersonal force. And that's really what it really comes to. And He's not a God who is revealed to us in Scripture. Once they come with that view, it's hard to deal with taking them to the truth, but that's exactly where you must take them. You might want to start in different areas to at least get their attention, but they're making exclusive and absolute claims when they say what they're saying. And then say, okay, in all fairness, if I'm arrogant, then that view can also be arrogant too. We need to reason and say, okay, by what authority... Do you have to say this? The truth of the matter is that what? Christianity insists there's only one true God. It's the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, Christianity actually takes people from all over. They'll say it's very narrow. Christianity offers truth and a gospel to everyone across the world and it doesn't force itself on people. The Greeks and the Romans whenever they were going big with their empires, were, uh, I guess you could say, they wanted to be open 
in, in a lot of senses. They wanted to be uh, non-judging and, and they accepted many different gods. Uh, or eventually it got to where that uh, Caesar was Lord. But there were many other gods. But the Greeks and Romans despised the poor people. Despised them. The Christians in the early church gave generously to the people who were downcast. Women in the Greek world and the Roman world were considered to be lower than men. And we know that Christianity brought equality to them. During terrible plagues, Christians would be the ones there caring for the sick and dying, and they would even be dying because of the diseases that they would carry on. It cost them their own lives even. At the very heart of the faith of these people and ours today is a man who died for his enemies, praying as he was dying for their forgiveness. No other religion has anything like that whatsoever. They never acted in violence. When I say that, I know in, in the Christian history books you'll see there was some violence. But from true Christians, you don't see them going on in war. Uh, there is has been some violence and oppression. We know that. But uh, the Greeks and the Romans were supposedly tolerant. And everyone had gods, but their culture was brutal to the less fortunate people. Christianity turns that upside down. Well, that's one thing about the uh, uniqueness of Christianity and um, the exclusivity. That is something that bothers people who are not Christians. How can you say that? Another one is, how could a good God allow suffering? How many times have you heard this? It's a legitimate question. If I weren't a Christian, I would ask this too. Sometimes as a Christian, sometimes we might ask, how can a good God allow this to happen? Something so evil and wicked to happen. Many people say this, listen, I'm not going to believe in a God who allows suffering, even if He exists. If they would only think of their statement, I'm not going to believe in this, even if it exists. I'm not going to believe in this terrible government, even if it exists. I'm not even going to believe it's there. <laughs> I'm just going to imagine it doesn't really have any thing to do with me. That's a terrible statement. Think about it, you know. Maybe he exists, some people say, or maybe he doesn't, but if he does, he cannot be trusted. I don't like this kind of God. In 2004, you guys remember, it's been six years already, there was a tsunami. Killed more than 250,000 people. One sweep newspapers all over the world had letters coming into them. Letters after letters. Letters after letters. All over the world. People were asking this. Where was God? Do you remember that? Where was God? And some people would say, well, if God is God, He's not good. And if God is good, well, He's not God. There was an effort to disprove the existence of God because of that tsunami. Something bad happened. Did these same people believe in a God before? They'd say they didn't, but it's funny how they'll come up and say, well, that proves there's no God now. (laughs) 
I think it can mean evidence for God. Just because you can't imagine a good reason why God would allow suffering doesn't mean that there is no God. Suffering will happen, and do we often come up and say, well, I know the answer. Uh, we, don't, we may know a little that God is in control. I don't know why this happened. Why would a, an infant die? Why would there be terrible things that can happen to a family? If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, then there can't be any. Right? Well, that's blind faith. It's just saying, well, if I can't understand exactly what's happening, then there, if there's no answers, then there, there's no God. So they'll put it that way. Many assume that there's good reasons for the, uh, for the existence of evil, then that would be accessible to our minds and we could all understand that. They assume that. Because I can't get an answer, then there's no such thing as God. That argument can't hold water at all, can it? I don't see it, so therefore it must not be. Somebody has um, a towel wrapped around their eyes where they can't see. And they say, I cannot see, so therefore it's not there. As they run into the piece of furniture, it's not there. You remember the story of Joseph? A great example of somebody who suffered for a long time. Uh, Of course, what his brothers did to him. And then being taken in uh, by uh, Egypt. And then actually um, being thrown into prison. For 13 years. All of this had to weigh heavily on him. Quite the suffering that he went through. But you know what? He became quite a powerful agent of the Lord in saving that nation of Egypt for food and other countries around him, Israel. And I think anybody here could actually identify with Joseph and what God did through him. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God used that for something much bigger than anybody could see. And Joseph understood that. A lot of painful experiences came through that. Suffering cannot prove that God does not exist. Why would anybody say that? It's, it's a problem for believers in the Bible. Isn't it a problem? We believe in the Bible. We know that suffering is there. Something happens to somebody uh, in, a, in a terrible way. But I think it's even more a problem for unbelievers. We may not get to the, the root of it all, but I think overall we, we kind of know why there is that. I think we have enough in Scripture to tell that. C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, had originally rejected the idea of God, didn't believe in God, because of evil. Now, this is a great thinker, right? He's known as a great thinker of our times. Then he realized that evil has more problems to be explained by atheism than Christianity does. The reason why is he said it was unjust for this to happen. 
And if you start thinking about that, think of it. What he was doing was taking a standard of what justice is. And he was saying, this is unjust. If there's no God, then there really is no justice. If there's nothing that's over us, it's whatever you want to think. Whatever you want to do. So he thought it was unjust, but then he realized that he got his idea of just and unjust from somewhere outside of his own thinking. It went to a supernatural world. What was he comparing this universe with when he called it unjust? When he saw all the evils and all the terrible suffering, death, dying. What is it? He realized that that justice comes from somewhere bigger than him. People would think, and I think we'd like to think this, people shouldn't suffer at all, they shouldn't die, they shouldn't be hungry and shouldn't be oppressed. We hate that idea, don't we? But yet it's here. It's reality. It is here. Evolution even depends upon dying, suffering, death, because they believe in the survival of the fittest. That's naturalism, isn't it? But yet they don't like this idea, so they say there's no God. And yet their whole idea is on survival of the fittest. On what basis does the atheist judge the natural world to be wrong, to be evil? They will say there are evils. What basis are they bringing that from? He has to have a standard. Where does love come from? That was another one that C.S. Lewis really thought on. And when you start thinking of those attributes that really come from God that He gives even to us, that are communicable in a sense, there's a standard that comes. It's outside the natural. So suffering is a problem for not only the believer, but it's definitely a problem for the unbeliever. Because they're bringing a standard or they're bringing God right back into it while they're saying there's no God. The unbelievers have a real problem explaining it. At least believers can point to the fact of sin and the consequences. And we can get into that whole story of what the gospel is about. Uh, But they will say, well, I can't believe in a God who allows it. It's a mistake. Now, would they say, I believe in a God if we didn't have suffering? Would they say that? Christians can say Romans 8.28 For God works all things all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So we can always use that verse. Sometimes there are inappropriate times to use that when somebody has gone through a terrible loss. But at the same time, we're thinking, well, you know, God is going to work this out. There might be a time that we can say that to them. We have to be sensitive. But when He says all things, He means all things. Horrible things, such as even death. God came to earth to put Himself on the hook of human suffering. And He went through the suffering. He experienced the greatest depths of sin. Christianity may not provide the reasons and answers for every painful experience, but it does provide a resource for going through the pain and suffering. We have hope and we have courage. 
And we have the source to go to. Jesus himself, whenever he was in this human body on earth, before he was crucified, was profoundly shaken. Let's turn to Mark 14. Verse 33, and let's look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. So we have him being troubled, deeply distressed, exceedingly sorrowful. This is God in human form. He felt this. He was shaken. Look in Luke 22.44. He felt things that we have felt profoundly. Plus things that were more. We'll get in that moment. But in Luke 22.44, and being in agony, He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There he is agonizing over this pain that he's going to suffer the next day. He knows exactly what this is all about. Look in Matthew 27, 46. He's going through the pain that night before. And then when He was on the cross, now about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? There are sermons and sermons on that particular verse. And we can get into, I guess we could go into a lot of the explanations on it, but we don't have that time. But we know that He suffered physically on that cross slow suffering that was happening, but the sin that was put on Him is unimaginable. There have been people that have suffered physically harder than Jesus had for longer periods of time on the cross. And we can look at Fox's Book of Martyrs and find out how many of the apostles died and all throughout church history. Terrible, horrible ways. But He had a a horrible way to die in the crucifixion, but there was something different that He had in suffering that no man can recognize in the sense that He took on our sin. And that is what is totally distressing. Imagine what that could feel like. I can't. But that's incredible. He knew suffering. Another question that they can throw at you is, well, isn't the church responsible for injustice? I don't know if I can really even identify with that. I don't know exactly where they're coming from, but I know through church history there have been things that the church has done and actually has killed people. We think of the Crusades, of course. I don't really identify that as being the the church, but it still takes on the name of church, and so we can explain that and say, I know there's a a blight on the name. Um, The church sometimes has not done what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, There are character flaws in individual Christians. Every one of us has our own flaws. Now you can say, 
Who? Who has some flaws? That's just funny, right? <laughs> I think we all know we have flaws. If Christianity is the truth, then why are there so many Christians living, uh, not non-Christians, not living like Christians? They're, they're living sometimes better. They even look like it. They even look better than Christians. They even look more righteous. Well, the average professing Christian has many flaws. And if you just look at the church, you'll see all the church splits there's been. And we see it right there in the first century. One of the first letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. They were having church splits already. The nature of man. When it rises, when the sin arises in in the body of Christ, it sure brings up a stench, doesn't it? Many Christian leaders have had moral failures. Sometimes we could put quote leaders, but even legitimate Christian leaders have had moral failures. So non-Christians sometimes can seem to live better lives than Christians. But the truth is, is that one can only have a relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And that's the only righteousness that we have. It's Christ's righteousness. Our moral efforts sometimes can be very feeble, can be very weak. And we know that that's not those moral efforts that's going to uh, accept one into heaven because of their moral efforts. Although those are important um, fruits of a Christian and they will desire to live that way. But the church is a hospital for sinners. That means there's sinners in the church. <laughs> We're all sinners sitting here in church. We all need the medicine of the Word of God. We all struggle and we all uh, fight against that sin. Uh, I think by looking at certain Christians, one can say sometimes that Christianity isn't worth much. People look at that and say, well, if that's the church and that's the hypocrites there, I don't want to be a part of it. Now, how many times have you had that one? Everybody has had that one, I'm sure. I can't go there because of the hypocrisy. You can compare an unbeliever's action with a believer's actions and see sometimes the unbeliever may look better, but... Sometimes the, uh, the unbeliever might even be more disciplined, might even control anger better than a Christian. Imagine someone who has just become a Christian and they, their lives were changed, the life was changed completely. I mean, things just started happening and they did One had a broken past, let's say, and a character, but it all changed significantly. It will change because of Christ. You can't say that one is a Christian and their lives never change. That'd be the case or not. Christ does that work. But they might be a little less secure than an unbeliever across the street. They might be a little bit less disciplined than someone who is very well adjusted. And they don't need religion. I put that quote, need. They think they don't need because everything is fine. But unless you know the starting points and the life that has journeyed through of each person, you would think that an unbeliever sometimes is better off. But the ones who've had a hard life, God can make them see that they really have a need. Everybody has a need. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. They recognize their need. Everybody has the need. But the ones who are blessed are the ones who recognize the need. We are poor and beggarly and we constantly need to have our hands out 
looking to the Lord. Feed me. I thirst. Give me your living water. We constantly want that, don't we? Really pursuing Him. And so we're, we're needy people. We're weak. We need God. We need Jesus Christ. But the sad thing is, most of the people might be very needy, but they don't know what they need. That's why our message is so important. How about religion and violence? Throughout the church time, before the church, Judaism, we see that the church supported war. We go back and look at David. He was a man of war. Moses uh, really wasn't necessarily a man of war. He led his people, but as they later eventually crossed into the uh, into Canaan, God told them to wipe them out. So you can see that their religion. See, it's, it's violent, and it's this is a God that causes wars. But we know we have to defend because we know there are evil people all across the world that would love to take our land, love to take our people and destroy them. So therefore, we have to have a defense. How about fanatics? Oh, those self-righteous Christian fanatics. (laughs) That really bothers people. That's another thing that uh, seems like their Christians are unjust. Some change so radically and so quick and I mean, it's just like they just turned a whole 180 degrees and everything, they're born again. All of a sudden, they don't want to drink, they don't want to gamble, they don't want to hang out with their friends and they don't smoke. I mean, all those outward things and all the, their different views on movies and television and politics and religion. All of a sudden, it seems like they're intolerant and it seems like they're self-righteous. In some ways, it may... Be that way. How many times have you seen a brand new Christian be so on fire that uh, he is very fundamental? And there's a lot of good things about that. And you say, well, God will probably um, put the fire on there too. It's good to have that fire. We should have it. As, as, as new Christians, old Christians, we should always have the fire of the Lord. But as one matures, they realize sometimes things that they can say and things that maybe the proper time is not now. Maybe later. We'll pray here. Uh, There's maturity in a Christian, but you see a a new one or or one who uh, has not maybe come to the level in a sense that they they need to be careful in how they uh, react. They overreact sometimes, but... Sometimes they become very pharisaical. They can become very legalistic. And and the Scripture has many answers on on this, on how we're to do that. There were were legalists that were in the early church, and Paul brings that forth. Uh, I think sometimes there are things that we don't necessarily have an answer for. One movie might bother one and another one not. Uh, I think it comes down to conscience, and I think it also... um, I think it's a good thing to say, hey, would this honor the Lord or... Maybe I can use this as a bridge to maybe uh, get somebody else talking. and So we don't always know how to make those judgments. Sometimes we're better off to not really say too much or say nothing sometimes. Christ is loving. Christ is forgiving. In John 8, 7, some people, some men brought some 
a lady up to Jesus. And of course she had been caught. Caught in adultery. In the very act, they had the evidence right there. And in 8.7, Jesus says, So when they continued asking Him, He raised Himself up and said to them, Everybody knows this. Non-Christians know this. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. That is Jesus. That's Christianity. There's a forgiveness that is always there. There's a love that's there that is beyond any other kind of religion. I can't understand that kind of thought. Go to Mark chapter 10. We look at Jesus again. You see, Jesus is at the center of all this that we're talking about. Christ has to be centered in our talks eventually. It's going to come down to who He is. Who do you say that He is? Jesus kept asking that question. Who do you say that I am? So if you engage into somebody who has different views, which many of them do these days. You have plenty of opportunities. Just remember that you want to focus on Christ. That's where you want it to go. In Mark 10.43 Yet it shall not so be among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for the many. Servant of all. Christ taught that in His living that He had, and of course in His dying. Incredible. So, yeah, sometimes church may not look like what it's supposed to be. It may not look Christ, but the more we resemble Christ, I think the more it will affect people who are outside the church. And be amazed. Another question is, how could a good God send people to hell? There was a book out by Rabbi Kushner back some time ago. And um, he's talking about good people, whether it be suffering, being sent to hell. And so he had, uh, you know, it was like God has his hands tied behind his back and he can't help it. How can a good God do all these evil things? Well, God is not capable of helping things out. That's more or less the answer that Kushner had. Well, there's no hope in that, is there? People will say that God has to be appeased. I don't want that kind of God. He's appeased with pain and suffering. One thought that some people say is, I doubt the existence of a judgmental God who requires blood to pacify His wrath. Hmm. I think most people are appalled at the biblical view of hell. Because it is eternal. It's an eternal punishment, as Jesus termed it in Matthew 25. It's something beyond even what our thoughts can imagine. And sometimes we try to reason that out. People believe so much today in personal rights. Can this kind of God exist? Well, no, they will say. 
because here's my belief in it. <laughs> Without any kind of authority. Can this be a God of love? Is what they'll say. And no kind of God of mine would ever do that. If God is loving and He is perfect, He should forgive and accept everyone. Everyone should go to heaven. Yes, that's what I believe. So here you have religious people, and even Christians, quote, <laughs> that would say, we're all going there. That's universalism. Because God is a loving God, and He is just going to wink away and forgive them and accept them anyway. Well, then why did Jesus even come to earth? It's all about Jesus, and it's all about the cross. It's all centered there. He should never get angry. If God is a loving God, He can't have anger, they would say. Look in Psalm 145, written 3,000 years ago. One forty five verse seventeen. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. So he's righteous, he's gracious. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. Hmm. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and save them. Don't you take great comfort in that? Verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless His holy name forever and ever. Wow. God's wrath flows from His love. Because He's not going to bring people into hell that don't want to be there. They don't. And even when they're in hell, they don't want to be in the presence of God. That's the whole point. They never, ever, will want to be in the presence of God. Not really in His true presence. About what His truth really reveals. The human impulse, though today it's interesting, that whenever somebody loses somebody in their family who gets shot and killed by somebody, what do they want? They want justice and they want that person not only to be put in jail, but their life to be taken. And so when they go to court, have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen somebody that says, well, I don't think that they really should be punished. Yes, that was my mother that they came in and shot and killed, but I forgive them and I think that they should be released because I forgive them. That's not the case. The human impulse is always that violent offenders that would pay for their crimes. And I think that would be an overwhelming statement that is absolutely true, isn't it? Turn to Luke sixteen twenty four. And not that we're not to have forgiveness, but we're talking about even man uh, in his, just his nature, wants justice uh, for somebody who's done wrong. In Luke 16, you have a rich man, you have Lazarus. This comes from the revelation of God, right from him. He tells this story. 
And we'll pick it up in verse 24. Um, you have the, the beggar. And uh, he's carried to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man dies. He's buried. He's in Hades. And Abraham is far off. And Lazarus in his bosom. Then verse 24. Then he cried and said. This is the, the rich man in Hades. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through the one rise from the dead. The rich man seems to be blind to what has happened. He expects Lazarus to be his servant. As he says, send Lazarus here that he may dip the tongue. Isn't that incredible? He expects Lazarus to be his servant. He doesn't even ask to get out of hell. But he blames God that he didn't really have enough information from him about the afterlife. And so make sure you tell the five brothers that they have information about this afterlife. <laughs> it was always there. Lazarus knew about it. I mean, uh, the rich man knew about that. In hell, it's things the way that people are now, only it intensifies to a degree that we can't even imagine. It's isolation. And it's intensified. There is denial. There's delusion. There's self-absorption. They will be about themselves more than they even are here on earth. The intensification is incredible. In Romans 1.24... Gives us a little bit of an idea what God does to people who want to continue on in their kind of way. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. Amen. God gives it up lets them have it here on earth and then eventually in hell. He gives them what they want, including freedom from Him. And that's what it's about. We note that in the book of Exodus, the people recognized that they needed the presence of God. And they were fearful until they knew that they had that presence and God guaranteed it to them. Now we look at people who don't want the presence of God. And He eventually lets them have what they want. Away from Him. Another question I won't spend any time on. Hasn't science disproved Christianity? 
Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, written those number one bestsellers. They say this, Science, as we know it today, has made belief in God unnecessary. Your answer is in science. You can't be intelligent and still hold religious beliefs. These are coming from new atheists. The God Delusion is one of those books by Dawkins. Hitchens, another one of the new atheists, says that religion is evil and poisonous. People are reading these books like crazy. You are being pre-programmed, they say, to believe in God. It's a brainwash. The only thing is, these guys don't interact with the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are miracles impossible? That's what they think. If you have a scientific mind, there's no, there's no supernatural. There can't be miracles. There can't be anything about Christ. Does science conflict with Christianity? Does evolution disprove God's Word? We certainly don't believe in evolution, but uh, it does not disprove God's Word. What about in the church? Are there failures? Is the church failed? Many have tried church. Many have found it wanting. And I think the church has to pay attention to the warnings. Why are people dropping out? Why are they dropping out in huge numbers? What's going on? I think we have to pay attention and not stick our head into the sand and act like it's not happening. Same kind of thing happened in the early church. The, the, the early church faced struggles that we face today. There was a whole list of sin, sins that were put in the epistles. You'll see them quite frequently. Paul mentions those. Just a little list. General list. And you can say, my, they... They did have a lot of problems in the church, didn't they? I'm sure it caused a lot of stumbling blocks. There was bickering, there was distrust, sexual problems, there was murder. Even in the Old Testament, there was sin and the patriarchs, such as Abraham, David, Moses. The weaknesses of people who are in body, uh, the body of believers were weak. Our weakness stalks our lives sometimes. So people see what's happening in the church and they get distasteful to them that they just drop out. But the problem is they're not looking to Christ. They're looking at people. We have the Scriptures here to direct our lives. We're not going to reach perfection here on this earth in these bodies. But we can find our healing and wholeness uh, in, through the Scriptures. We have to be aware of our shortcomings we should be gracious and forgiving of all. If we're not gracious and forgiving, then we fall short of God's glory and then we sin. We've got to understand how far we are from God's intentions of conforming us into the very image of Jesus Christ. We're still far from that as He's making us into that. Why are so many leaving? Well, um... They're starting to buy a lot of the ideas that are out there in the world. Some are going to cults where they feel more welcome. Some have fallen into adultery. Some have fallen into homosexuality. Some are just disillusioned. Some don't like the truth that's preached to them. And some like the tickling of ears. 
because they get the tickling of ears, eventually they leave too because there's really no substance to that. People are disappointed. And some people see Christianity uh, its not intellectual enough for them. Many, I think, are asking questions. Though. Whether they ask them or not, they're asking a lot of questions. They're trying to survive. True Christians, even, are trying to survive the high seas of their faith journey that they're having right now without a compass or without a chart. And they're up on the high seas and man, it's running hot and heavy. Ravi Zacharias says, Is Christianity a mindless game in which we are hurled into the storms of life with false assurances? Or are the instructions we have been given so detailed that we can anticipate what the storms of belief will be like? And know who is in control and what to do when we reach solid ground. In the end, rather than it being Christianity that has failed, could it be that we'll be startled to find out it is the church that has failed, not Christ? And then even then the church does not fail because it's Christ and He owns that. And that visible church may look like it's failed. It doesn't. But it's individuals fail. I fail. I fall short of that glory. Every one of us fail in some aspect. But yet, we know what real truth is. We can even disappoint Him, and that's putting that in human terms. We know we are in His grace. But there's always the road to recovery. We have, uh, Zachariah said this, we have a rudder and sail we have been given. And most important to the captain of the ship called life. We have the rudder. We have the sail. Did you know Noah whenever he built that ark and he went in there? That after he slammed the door, there was no sail and no rudder? <laughs> he's there and all he can do is just trust in God where he's going to take him. He had no control in that ark other than what he was supposed to do with the animals and such. He'd already done what God told him. If we struggle with Christianity, I think we have to realize that there are a lot of people struggling and wondering why certain things are this way and that way. But God has the great GPS. And if we're off that path, He'll get us right back on there. And it's a perfect system that he had. Sometimes there's shadows, sometimes there's dark nights. But his light always carries us through. Close this thing out. I've gone well over an hour, I think. But, um, what are we trying to stress? We need to engage the culture with humility. And even though we're intolerant in the sense that I'm not going to grab a hold of what their beliefs are, yet we are still to be tolerant in the sense of listening to what they have and then bringing back forth what the truth is and, and being relevant to them. We have to make a difference. We're here to, to make a difference. People struggle, but we have a God that we worship. Christianity has not failed us. God has not failed us. Uh, maybe the church or the church people may, may tend to fail you, but, you know, we don't live up to our standards, but we have a beautiful Savior. And, yeah, yeah, um, if somebody is looking to somebody else to make 
um, make it everything okay for them, they're looking at the wrong place. We don't look at the people. I mean, they can help. We are to follow, but at the same time, we're to look at Christ and recognize that He has the unconditional love for us and He guides us through. There are turbulent waters happening in, in our world today, but He gives the strength, He gives the courage to us. And we are to teach the people how to take these Scriptures and apply them to their own lives, how they can impact society. Christianity changes the very heart of people. And so people can now start conforming to the very thoughts of God and very actions of how Christ was as far as His character were to sense the very heart of God and lead people to uh, Christ. It's not about building big churches and tickling people's ears, but it is giving them these kind of truths. We're to proclaim the great glories, the great supremacy, the, the excellencies of Christ. He makes all the difference. So look at Christ. He's carrying the light there. And people are uh, actually defeated. And they have a freedomless worldview if they're not looking at Christ. And that kind of view is an imposing its belief on all of society today. And we as Christians, uh, we know that we don't swallow that belief. The light of Christ will carry you through, put your feet on the solid ground of truth and hope, and one day the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's, let's pray.